We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Hello, dear listeners. Uh, welcome to our 15th episode of um, our podcast. Today, we are going to have a dialogue about two very exciting topics and uh, foundational concepts in existential psychotherapy, existentialism in general. And these uh, topics are freedom and responsibility. We are plan to start our dialogue by discussing what freedom means, how we understand freedom in um, existential thinking, existential analysis, how is responsibility connected to freedom. And then uh, as we usually uh, try to do in our episodes, we are going to talk about uh, practical um, applications of um, freedom and responsibility in our lives and in um, our clinical practice. So maybe I'll start by inviting my colleagues to uh, tell a bit uh, about how do we understand freedom? Why do we uh, connect so quickly freedom and responsibility to the degree that we have an episode on freedom and responsibility? And maybe starting with ourselves, are we feeling free right now? Are we really free? And how do we know that? Not the question I was going to answer, but yeah. You are free not to answer it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that's true. I'd suggest generally, yeah, relatively free, just generally in, in, in my life. Um, certainly kind of actively deciding and not feeling obligated in, in, in too many ways. But what I was going to uh, start off with was the idea of freedom. Like I think the, the first, first time I really grasped the connection, the philosophical connection between, or existential connection between freedom and responsibility was in a philosophy class in, in my first year of undergrad and where my my professor demonstrated this kind of concept in, he was talking about liberty, not freedom. He acted it out, so it was quite humorous. And he, he said, my right to walk around swinging my arm, and he literally walked across the room like swinging his arm in front of him, and he was quite comical, ends at the tip of your nose. And that was a, such a great visual, obvious kind of thing where you'd go, well, yeah, I can walk around looking as silly as I want, but as soon as I connect with your nose, then that's too much. And that kind of, in a slightly different way, is kind of my my concept of freedom and responsibility. I can do what I like up until this point, and then also I have to bear consequences of that. So that's very much uh, the definition of uh, Immanuel Kant's like freedom, right? And my freedom extends until the point where you start infringing upon your freedom. But until at that point, um, I can exert my freedom. So what about responsibility then? Do I have a responsibility to swing my arms up until your, the tip of your nose? Do I have any responsibility until then or it just starts, my responsibility starts once I get there? I will uh, politely use my freedom and, and decline to answer because <laughs> 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 I don't have anything ready off the top of my head. I don't know. My gut sense is that it would start before, that the responsibility starts before that contact would happen. Just because I think there's so many things that can compile or lead up to consequences. And so to start to take those things into account, yeah, you could swing about around the room as much as you want, I guess, just to go off of that example. But I do think that there are things that lead up to the impact or beyond just the physical impact. Um, and so to take those things into account as well. Arizona, is what you said, Chelsea. Like, and again, responsibility is not just a moral concept only, right? That you know, if I happen to hit your nose or then I feel morally bad because I did something wrong, but it's also responsibility in the sense of ability to respond within a certain context 
by making a choice to swing my arms all around. And that also is connecting to my ability to respond in a certain context. Is it appropriate to swing my arms? Is it what's asked of me in that context? Um, that's a, maybe a less common understanding of responsibility, not only the moral kind of um, duty or the moral um, feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm responsible not to harm you, but also my uh, responsibility to uh, make a choice and to act in a certain way, in a certain context. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that freedom and responsibility go hand in hand, though they're often pitted against each other, where I find with some of the clients I work with would consider themselves very responsible in, in their lives and overly responsible for the people around them and therefore feel a suffocation or constriction, less freedom to do as they would like to do. And part of the work is that, at least for me, is that these, these two actually complement each other more than we realize. So I, in a very simple view, I view freedom as the ability to make a choice and responsibility as being answerable to a situation. I can answer to that. I can show up. I will show up. And my freedom is how I choose to go about doing that. And I think in that arm swinging situation, it is, you know, to what extent is your professor answering the demands of the situation? I mean, he's being responsible and, and providing a demonstration to the students and exhibiting his point. He's responsible for his body and being aware of how it moves through space how it interacts with people close to him. Although it's funny, I, you know, being a student, I'd be like, no, your freedom doesn't end at the tip of my nose. Your freedom ends about one foot around me because if you got that close, that would still feel very, quite violating to me. I think that's kind of interesting. Like we're all different in where, where our boundaries are and, and what, what actions others may do that may actually feel like it impinges on my space or yeah, what's too much, what's not enough, is, it seems like such an individual thing. So what you're saying, Janelle, is that basically freedom is responsibility. It's an ability to respond. And then moreover, being responsible means to, to stand by my actions and to be answerable to those. But it's, um, freedom is an ability, essentially, ability to respond and to make a choice in a given situation. Thank you for providing those uh, definitions. Mm. That response, as in respondability, was something that, that really, I think, in my training really transformed how I saw freedom and how I felt freedom and responsibility. Because previously, I think I would have fallen into those categories, you know, some of those categories that you described, Janelle, of that feeling overly responsible or responsible for others, and which was you know, tended to be much more obligation or feeling of duty. But then, yeah, when we broke that that word down into, and we, when we transpose them, right, not responsibility, but ability to respond. When you look at it that way, it calls you, it kind of says, okay, how would you like to respond? How do you choose to respond? And so very, very different just in your, in your mind, just to, to ask yourself that question really transforms how, how you engage with it, how you engage with, with anything, with accepting responsibility, with carrying out a responsibility, at least it did for me. So, so those people who say, um, oh, I'm so responsible, I'm so suffocated by responsibilities and I, I have no freedom because I, I have no choice. I am responsible to do this. Actually, that's, uh, that's not true. We can be responsible only if we are free. We are only responsible to the degree that we are free and we can make a choice. So that uh, understanding of responsibility as uh, duty, burden, is really just that, a duty and a, a sort of a perceived burden, but it's not a responsibility. So I'm glad you brought that up early, Janelle, and we have a chance to distinguish this, because I cannot be responsible if I'm not free. That's a lie. So what would you call it then mm -hmm. when people feel like they're duty bound or they're obligated or they're stuck. The etymology of obligation is to bind, to be bound. So that's the yeah, duty obligation. There's a promise 
and a commitment to. And I think where it moves from, I'm doing this to be responsible because I am freely choosing to respond to a situation and I have to is when it, when we're not invested in it anymore, like there isn't a personal, I am consenting to based off our last episode on inner consent. I'm consenting to saying yes and and taking on this responsibility or this thing. So, so whatever I have an ability of some sort, the capacity of some sort, and hence I can respond and make a choice. I'm free. And I think that's important, especially in our current context, when we all tend to feel a bit uh, trapped by the fact that we are in this uh, lockdown, mini lockdown, whatever it is, a bit due to the COVID pandemic. And many people feel trapped and suffocated and not able to, to do what they wanted to do. But as long as there is a capacity, an ability to respond even to respond to his sadness, to respond to his anger, to respond to his, by enduring, perhaps, it's, uh, there is still freedom there, freedom to choose that. So um, my question would be, when are we not responsible? Where I'm, are we not free? Can we be not free? You know, if we go kind of philosophically, we're always free in a way. We always, you know, if, particularly in the, in the existential, in the kind of existential analytic definition of you know, I always have an ability to respond, right? I always have an ability to choose my attitude towards something, if nothing else, in which case I am at least existentially free. Whether I'm free literally and whether I can leave a prison or or defy COVID orders, you know, that's a, a different story. Yeah, I agree. Like existentially speaking, I mean, Sartre wrote that we are condemned to freedom. So we cannot not be free. Like it's uh, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves sometimes that we are not free and, and poor us, look at us. We are so trapped and cannot do much and hence we start uh, perhaps victimizing ourselves and not responding, not uh, acting responsibly. Existentially, we are always able to do something. And as you said, Sav, ultimately we have the ability to choose our position, our attitude in front of situations that are inescapable or impossible to change. Mm. And I have certain clients that come to mind when this comes up, but that sometimes there's like a pre-contemplative part of it where it's like, like you just referenced Mahila, somebody, you know, convincing themselves that they're not free. But I think a lot of people live in a state of not realizing that they're free where you know, you wouldn't even realize that you're convincing yourself that you're not free, but it's almost starts a lot before mm-hmm. that, where there's like a fog or not being aware of freedom. And and I think in that, then it is more difficult to be responsible and live a responsible life when you're, you can't identify where freedom exists in your life. Yeah, I agree. And I think we are not always aware how free we are actually how how scaringly free we are. And sometimes we, we may try to delude ourselves that we are not because there are orders and there are laws and all that. I think we are scaringly free and hence um, anxiety is evoked by <laughs> realizing how incredibly free we are. It's false that somebody is telling us what to do. I mean, we choose to believe that and to conform. But fundamentally, we are scaringly free. I, I illustrate that with my clients sometimes and, and, and I say, well, you know, if, if I wanted to right now, I could walk outside and go and kill somebody in the street. And they're like, and so sometimes they go, no, but you're not allowed to. <laughs> and I go, well, yes, I would probably be arrested or shot or something, but nothing stops. I, I can, if I so choose, go out and do that. But that's a, a, you know, a very stark expression of freedom. Whether it would be responsible or not is a wholly different, whole different matter. I think that that example really illustrates the freedom as ability, right? That you have the ability, you could, but of course, should you? And uh, does it correspond to your moral conscience and all that? These are other questions. But technically, uh, ability-wise, you, you could do, we could do things that uh, we initially say, no, I'm, I'm not allowed to do them. But really, 
And that's why it's a freedom evokes anxiety for lots of people. And there is a book called Escape from Freedom, right? So we, we try to also escape from our freedom. It's, it's really, it's really hard to, to be free. Oh, and to deal with that anxiety, we self-impose limitations or restrictions. And depending on how much we own those limitations, we may then project them onto family or friends around us. Well, I can't because my mom would be upset with me if I did. Maybe that's actually true. But, you know, to what extent does that matter for your life? What I explain to clients is like to demonstrate how we are more comfortable with parameters and restrictions is... Like for some of us in elementary, there were like I sleepovers in the gymnasium. And, you know, if you're the only kid with a sleeping bag in a gymnasium to go to sleep, you probably wouldn't put your sleeping bag in the middle of the gym. You would line it up against a wall or even a corner somewhere. Like we, even as animal beings, often feel safer with some sort of containment or perimeter or a border around us. We have all this freedom to choose from, but we will usually gravitate towards some kind of container. Absolutely, Jonathan. And I think uh, we, we complain a lot about the orders and the rules and restrictions, but if the government, whatever we want to call it, the system wouldn't put those in place, I, I have a feeling that we would. I mean, they wouldn't look very nice probably, but we will act in a way that we will restrict freedom. And it will, I think it will be much uglier than, than it is now. I don't believe that as human beings, we, we do very well with freedom. And to go off of like Janelle's example, like you used the word can't. And I think that's also like just a really important word to draw attention to as it comes to ability. Like when we speak of our existential freedom, like Zav was saying that he could go into the street and kill somebody doesn't mean that he is willing to or that he would. But when we speak of ability, we're speaking on the can level. The ability is there. We could do it. And so I think that also comes up quite a bit with clients for me where like I'm just thinking of someone in particular that I've worked with. She has not wanted to be alive for 20 years, but she'll say, I can't kill myself because I have young children and because I have a family. And so there's been, I guess, like a, a very gentle kind of moving towards freedom and responsibility in a sense, well, you could, in fact, some people do in the exact same scenario that you're in, but it, it sounds like you're not willing to. And then from there, we can try to detect the value. How come you're not willing to? Or not choosing to. Exactly. Exactly. I was about to say she's choosing something. Actually, she has a lot of ability in choosing something else. So she's choosing not to exert the capacity to kill herself, but she's exerting a lot of capacity for choosing the value of children and whatever she's choosing. And I, in some of my work with clients, I've found, and even some clients have admitted, I don't want to make a decision. Like I, I just wish sometimes that people could make decisions for me, which is a wanting to surrender freedom to an other. Because I think that decisions or what we've talked about is that decisions would require these clients to show up in their life and to take a stand and to say, this is me. This is my values. This is what I want. These are the risks that I'm taking. This is the direction that I'm choosing. Freedom and responsibility requires us to show up in our lives. And that can be very daunting for many people. Absolutely, Janelle. I, I, I even use the phrase, decisions will set you free. And to kind of come off that, it's, it's, and what we've just been saying the last few minutes, if we kind of politically kind of, we we're seeing at least in, in Europe and to some extent in North America, this kind of what I would call scary shift towards authoritarianism and in the name of freedom, but what, what actually it yields is the lack of freedom because, and I had a discussion with my, one of my clients the other day who actually several of my clients have said this, you know, how can people want this? 
And the very simple answer is that it's easier. It's easier. They don't have to make decisions, don't have to think, don't have to take on responsibility. I, I do what I'm told. And so long as it's within, you know, a modicum of comfort, I don't really have to show up like you've just said. I agree, Sav, and um, here you feel probably my anger with the with the um, how we um, uh, raise children. Our education system that is becoming more like a corporate business, generally speaking, and a training system, like literally training humans, not an education system that actually helps a human being to become a human being. Of course, I mean, I see I'm working in the education system for a while, like seeing students asking, oh, tell me, what should I do? What do you want me to do? How many references? What kind of font style? What size of the font? I mean, and every time I responded this anger to those questions was not because I was angry with the students, but angry with how, how is it possible that someone who were, our people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they have to ask such a question and to look up to a authority because there is a right way and we want to get the marks yeah that's another that's another horrible thing <laughs> anyways i can go on what? and on that's a horrible thing because it really destroys uh, destroys yes. that capacity to show up and authenticity and i think we have a horrible horrible tradition in terms of how we educate people our society that's such a horrific job at cultivating that authenticity and freedom and educators are, most of them are doing a, a poor job at that because they also collide with students because they need to keep their jobs and all that stuff. All the politics of the academic system and, and so on. But the, the point is that I think what you said, Sav, the reason we see those tendencies like coming back to some authoritarian regimes and all that is also a reflection of how we do not educate our children, how we do not cultivate certain values early on, and then people don't know what to do with themselves and look at a, a dictator to to receive some orders. Yeah, I taught like an intro psychology class one time and just all of the questions inundated with, you know, how many, like, do you want double space after the period? Do you want a single space? This font, how about these margins? And it's like, you know what? I don't care. What I want to see is that you're, you've, you know, brought yourself to the assignment, whatever that looks like, and that you've been able to, you know, be creative. And I think what has happened in our society with freedom and responsibility and, you know, having this right way of being educated or delivering education has really limited creativity, which is like ultimately expression of oneself and that ability to show up. Well, and I, I think that's hard too. In, in education, there's a bit of um, contradictions in terms of we're teaching you to be free thinkers, but it's those moments along the way that encourage the free thinking, which goes with creativity. And yet we're taught, you know, standardization like APA. Yes, you need two spaces after a period. That's the proper way of doing things. And so I, I mean, I agree with Mahal. I think fundamentally, I think one of the most difficult things is to be a free thinker. We create a lot of boxes, boxes within boxes within boxes. So you you think outside the box in one regard, and then you find you're in a whole different box. And so I think life always demands of us to really step, take a step back, take some distance and, and to reflect, am I really showing up in this situation and choosing this? Yeah, thank you, John. We are uh, my biggest sadness that comes up at anger often is that we really forgot the art of teaching and educating and we we just um, serve lies really like we we delude students even from like kindergarten elementary school that uh, this is how life is and they have to fit in a box and they have to uh, leave two spaces after a period who the heck decided that like that's so freaking ridiculous and to see kind of more deducted because someone doesn't leave two, two spaces after a period, it's just ridiculous. And when I get angry about that, it's not, uh, not about APA style and stuff like that, but really about how much damage we are uh, inflicting upon the human spirit, the human freedom, 
And dictatorship starts in the families, in the classrooms. That's the very sad part for me, having having myself come from a like di- dictatorship in um, in Romania growing up, like um, having come out of that and to see now these tendencies coming back is really sad. And to see how, again, that uh, tendency for people to follow orders, to look up for directions comes from how we do, I think, a poor job um, cultivating the capacity to to be free as human beings and creativity and to just stop, take it down a notch is two spaces after the period. Who cares? <laughs> like really, who cares? Yeah. It's funny on that one. I, I remember when I started doing my master's and because in the you know other countries that I studied in, there was different systems of citing and we didn't use the APA in other words. And so when we started here and had to you know get to grips with this, I was so annoyed. I was like, who, this is so pathetic. And of course, I don't know where, what this says about me, but then I got good at it and then I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I was almost kind of almost like a, well, fine. If you're going to make me do this, I'm going to make it such that you can't take a single iota of a mark away from me because it's going to be so perfect. And in fact, I'm going to go down, drill down into the absolute nitty gritty of APA that if you say something, I'm going to show you why you're wrong. <laughs> I wonder if anyone told you that you are a bit subversive. Like trying to actually align is the system to undermining. I think um, regular listeners might have heard me say that before <laughs> or somebody else. But then it brings me up to the next question then is, you know, I went to you know, South Africa. Schools are pretty rigid, right? There's you do what you're told and you follow and you wear uniforms and you cut your hair in a particular way. And uh, they don't tolerate, uh, you know, if you back chat the teacher, then, yeah, out you go. And then you go to the principal. Like it's not, you don't get away with a lot. And yet, to a large extent, I would consider myself a freer thinker than most. And so then, how come how come the education system didn't get me? And at the same time, I was thinking, yeah, like my experience in Romania was very much the same. <laughs> like uniforms, I mean, you don't really say anything to the teacher. You go to the principal, the consequences are pretty dire, not just for the the student, but also for the family, right? Anyways, bad consequences. And yet I, I felt... Uh, Strangely more free in a way, of course, like I still try not to um, endanger my family too much, but I, I felt more free and I had a more sense of freedom than I ever had um, in Canada, in a democratic country, because I think what I encountered here, it's not only that I encountered a lot of fakeness in like pretending that we are free, giving the illusion that we are free constantly. Oh yeah, you have this choice. However, the reality that there is no choice. You had, and I think this is, was the same in South Africa, you had something to resist as well. Yes. Which I think is a big, big yes, difference. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. That's I what think, stood yeah. out to me, what mm-hmm. you, both of you were saying, is that, that freedom is cultivated in the resistance. In like, I do not stand there, I stand here. This is what I, where I take a stand. And if we're not given that, if, if we don't see what we resist, if we don't have a sense of that, it's difficult to see the way that our freedom gets taken subtly. Absolutely. Would we then kind of also add in that not just the education system, but the, the apparent degree of freedom that we have, say, in North America and in, in Europe, it, not that it's wrong necessarily in that, that we don't have the freedom, but that in that exposure of that freedom when we don't really know what to do, we don't really, really like it. We can't really appreciate it or taste it. I think that that comes from the fact that we have so many invented needs, not real needs. We, I mean, the, all the consumerism invents so many needs and we feel that we have so many choices that are overwhelming, but in that we lose our freedom. So the more uh, choices we have for products and all kinds of different variants of a product, the more we lose our freedom and the more we feel that freedom because there's nothing solid. As Janelle said, there's nothing to resist. And the nicer people are with you and give you choices in quotation marks, the less free we we are because there's nothing solid there. There is something very flimsy. And, and I mean, I think it is important to acknowledge. I mean, this year was huge just politically and socially in terms of a Black Lives Matter movement and the riots happening 
and that people taking a stand and saying, I am not free. I, and I do not have the same freedoms as someone I live next door to because of the color of my skin. And I think for people who have more freedom or we would, and the languaging is more privilege, I think for many people it's quite shocking or there's an awareness of that, but really an inability to fully understand to the extent that that freedom varies from person to person and is experienced differently on, on many sociocultural levels. I think that's a great comment there, Janelle. It also, I think it shifts us nicely into uh, a concept that I would say most people, and even I didn't think about until I started doing this, the, the existential training about the difference between freedom from and freedom to. And the, you know, as you said, the Black Lives Matters protests were a, a wonderful example of freedom to, to say no, to say enough, to say, I might even say that now we have to some degree, a freedom to decide whether or not to abide by the COVID restrictions, which I had a conversation with one of my clients the other day and saying, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that. And I kind of pointed out, well, you know, at least here in BC, we still have a relative degree of, of freedom. And then I said, to, but ultimately you get to decide. You don't have to follow. You know, there's no, you know, a soldier's not going to come and force you to do that. Like we're not, it's not anywhere close to that so you could not wear your mask if you really didn't want to yeah and i was thinking like even the whole pandemic and covid during this year i think we really experienced a lot of limitations and resistances that we haven't experienced before which i think created a degree of stress that was unprecedented like recently in our experience so i i think even this pandemic may, I hope, it may um, bring out a sense of freedom, like in the small things that we do, in the small choices that we have, like it, it kind of forces us to reflect on what can I still do? And do I want to do this? And am I going to do it because uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry tells me to do it? Or am I doing it also because I can consent to it and I give my consent to it? So my hope is that there may be something good in this, uh, this whole situation this year in the sense that we may become more aware of how much freedom we have. It's not just uh, being victims of being trapped and, oh my God, the government tells me to wear masks, but actually to discover some freedom in, in the midst of these limitations, to have this resistance to allow us to go inwardly and say, yeah, actually I can still do lots of things. I can still choose my attitude and my consent. Just to kind of like bring that back to the therapy room, I think it might be interesting and maybe this is too soon in our dialogue or a change of direction, but just the like the profession of counseling psychology, I just think it's really interesting. I think that there is quite a bit of resistance still in our profession to, you know, quote unquote, tell clients what to do. And yet I also feel at the same time, there's a lot of colleagues that I have that, you know, do tell clients what to do. And I think, you know, given that we like provide a service, sometimes it's hard to name like what that service is, because ultimately what I'm wanting to do as a therapist is, you know, help my client freely be able to make decisions for themselves, freely be able to experience their emotions, to show up as who they are. And, you know, I provide some scaffolding for that. But once in a while, you know, I'll get that client that shows up and they've got like a notepad mm -hmm. and they're <laughs> sitting there like about, you know, going to write yeah. down like as if I'm going to teach them or, you know, tell them what to do for, you know, the 50 minutes that we're together. And so I just find that like very interesting, just how we position ourselves as therapists within this culture of authoritarianism where you know we're constantly getting direction around this is how it should be done or this is you know what you need to do or go talk to an expert about this so I just I find that interesting that I think some of us are still really trying to hold that space for the client to 
also really participate in their therapy, but I also really feel a pull in, in another direction that like our profession is kind of crumbling in that way. Yeah, I think, I think you bring up some, some really interesting points there, Chelsea. And I, I find myself sometimes going between those those two kind of extremes of not so much telling clients what to do, but, you know, saying, if you continue doing that, the consequence will be that, like, you know, and then also kind of from the, the a lot of the training kind of, well, you don't really say what you don't give your opinion you don't give which is slightly very different in the existential training right we 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 not so much give, give our opinion per se but it's we have our own position as people we're not just this kind of all-knowing wise kind of therapist we are human too with our own <laughs> fallibilities and anxieties and and so we we bring this this kind of human experience you said it wonderfully a few episodes ago you know we we're human and then we wake up and go to work and we're human and we continue to be taking, this is where the whole, again, we're going back to, to responsibility, the ability to respond helps me so much in that navigate that kind of messiness is okay. We have these, I could tell you what to do and that, and you'd be happy with that. Or I could tell you not to do. And I think, Oh, I'm, I'm doing such a great job because I'm not telling you what to do. But if I then ask myself, well, how am I going to help this client? Or what am I going to say here? What is my position? What, how do I respond to this person's apparent neediness for an answer? And can I, you know, can I sit there and, and be with that person and not give any answers? Yeah. Right? Which is a very <laughs> difficult thing to do sometimes. But I think actually you've already given lots of answers in the sense of you, you do respond. You don't just sit there and let them stew and say, okay, just stay there and suffer. You actually respond by even saying, I see your neediness. I see that you want me to give you an answer. I see how much you want that. Let's look at this together and see how, how do you understand it? What do you want? What, uh, how is it for you if I don't give you an answer and all that? So I like what you said, Sav, like that we bring ourselves as human beings, as therapists, and um, we, are, we are present. I think presence is a, is a quality that we can bring to our encounters with our clients. And I think we do a lot by responding, but we don't have to give the answer. We can take a position, we can be there with ourselves, with the client, with whatever it is, but without giving them a, a nicely packaged answer and definitely perhaps not the one that they are looking for, not because you are cruel and we want to withhold <laughs> that, yeah. but because usually it's, it's a bit of a fantasy of some sort, of a, a misplaced expectation sometimes that there is a nicely packaged answer to what they bring up, when in fact the questions that they hear and the struggles that they experience our invitations to get closer to themselves, to understand better themselves, their life and others. Yeah, but also what you said, Chelsea, like you made me realize that yeah, I, I directed lots of my anger towards the educators, teachers, whatever, but like equally, it goes equally towards like therapists and therapy and counselors. And it's true, like it's even, but how we train counselors and therapists, like again, like what kind of models, generally speaking, do we have usually? Right? And that's why for me personally, the training in existential analysis mattered so much in my development as a person. And to be able to do what we just said, to show up in my work with a client without feeling the need to give an answer or to fix it or to appear as an expert. So that's, that was incredibly valuable for me. Yeah, because I, th I think, you know, showing up as that quote unquote expert it often leads to therapist burnout because there's just so much pressure and, you know, filling some kind of answer. It's not sustainable, but it's also not really helpful either because, you know, the, the answer that comes from me to a client, it's not going to land the same way or be as effective as that answer coming from the client themselves. But I do think that it does take, yeah, a, a certain posture of the therapist to be able to, you know, withstand like, you know, someone staring at you going, what do I do and how do I do it to really invite that person into, you know, the togetherness of the encounter and go, okay, yeah, let's, 
let's look at this closely together. I feel like I'm always saying this, but again, I think this is one of the things that it takes time. That's at least what I've noticed. There seems to be this pressure, even like implicit pressure clients put on themselves to come up with a response or to make a decision right away. So even in the doing PEA process that we talked about last episode, doing that with clients, I find, you know, if I ask a question that there isn't even a moment of reflection, there's just that feeling of pressure. I need to just say something. And so I think in a small way, part of our freedom as people is like, I am free to take a minute to just think about my response and actually, you know, try and access myself, really sit with it. And maybe I'll have a sensation toward the question or a feeling may emerge or a value. But I think, yeah, there's there's a time pressure in our in our North American culture to just react constantly. And I think to feel our freedom and to respond requires a moment, a breath. Completely, Janelle. Like I'll often say to clients, you know, if we've been discussing something and I'm getting the sense that there's kind of not really a a clear way forward or that a position that the clients come to. And it's like, yeah, maybe it's not time. Maybe it's okay to take more time to decide and to just stay you know, as things are right now. I mean, even to stay and to, to consciously decide not to make that decision is a position in and of itself. Yeah. You don't have to respond. That's also part of your freedom. Except that, as you said, we, we have a slight obsession to respond and also to elaborate and to fill spaces. Like we, we cannot just sit with a simple answer or to, with no answer at all. We necessarily have to fill in the space, to go over and over, to explain. That's why that goes back to our, our conversation about phenomenology, right? That we don't look for explanations, but actually for descriptions and for pauses and for silences and for, I don't know. I'm not sure for that openness, right? Rather than for being cluttered, like inwardly cluttered and not even hearing the questions because there is no space for the question to resonate, to be heard. But Mahila, I have to be productive. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that is the oppression of productivity. And, and I think it's uh, also the clients get that. I mean, they come to our sessions because they also get it. They, are, they also have to be productive. I'm sure like lots of clients come very in late stage of burnout and all that because they also try to be productive in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or clients will often say to me, oh, I didn't come prepared. And almost invariably, I know this from my own experience and then also from therapy, almost invariably those are the best sessions you have. And I remind them of that sometimes and they're like, oh yeah, last time I did this, we had a really good session. Okay. But there's this, this kind of, oh, well, I, I want to maximize my 50 minutes with you or my hour and a half as if, if I maximize those 50 minutes, then everything will sort itself out just because it is difficult to, sometimes to communicate that, that slowness, taking that time, you know, that space. And as Janelle alluded to and we've talked about. I think we, we kind of move into our next section, like what, how to cultivate freedom and responsibility in, in our therapeutic um, hour with clients and uh, like slowing down, allowing uh, ourselves not to respond, silences, or actually not, not to respond, but to realize that not having an answer is a response itself. And it's, um, it's freedom there. What do we do is the responsibility issue, like uh, clients who feel literally burdened by a lot of responsibility and they say, I have no choice. You tell me, what can I do? My favorite, favorite phrase, and, and I, I don't know if it's your voice, Mahila, actually, as, as, as one of my trainers or, or if it's Alfred's voice as the... We have a similar voice. <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but it's but it's what do you say to that? Or how is that for you? Like you know, what is your position? Sure, okay, so you feel overburdened by this responsibility. Okay, maybe that's so. But what do you say to that? Are you okay? Is that okay for you? Are you happy with that? At least if you say, Well, no, I'm not, I hate it. Okay, great. We have a starting point. Or yes, I do, and okay. 
yeah, but what if they say, what stupid question is that how I feel about it? It doesn't matter how I feel. I have to do it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're trying to make me demonstrate my, my skills or yeah. lack thereof here. Um, but so, so it depends on, in, in full kind of um, frankness, it depends on, on, on how I am that day. Sometimes I might just be combative and say, well, you might think that, but you don't. You could, you could choose not to. You could choose to get on a plane and, and abandon it all. And that's possible. Well, yeah, yeah, but I don't have money. In fact, I have that. I have. I had a client trying to get to Imagines, and, you know, and every time we'd get it, okay, well, I'd go on a trip and I'd go, so I'd get to the airport and, and I'd say, well, where would you go? Well, it depends how much money I've got. And I'd be like, but we're, we're exploring here. You have freedom. You can go where you like. But yeah, it, so that's the, the combative one. It's the restrictions. Yeah, that just the natural noticing, the natural tendency to place restrictions, even on imagination. Uh-huh, indeed, yes, that's a very, very, very good emphasis. That may be a good place to start with clients who do that just for them to notice. Okay, another restriction. So then it would be about what if you could? What if you could have it differently? What might it be like? What would you do if you didn't have these obligations? I suggest possibility, openness. It's really kind of where, where, where I personally go. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's good. And I think also ultimately as therapists, you also have freedom to tell a client, well, if you don't, uh, you are not open to, you know, to access, you know, your feelings and to, to understand yourself, perhaps this is not the best time for us to work together on this. I mean, talking about freedom. Right. It's, uh, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily that uh, someone may naturally look for um, some support in their victimization, <laughs> in self-victimization. And uh, I think it's also important to say, for, um, at least I would say from um, the way, knowing how I'm working, that maybe it's really not the greatest fit there because I'm not going to play the game of giving them um, uh, the answers that they need in order to continue to feel not free and victimized. Actually, it will be like, well, if you tell me you don't want to explore your feelings, you don't want to take a position, then it's very little I can help you with. So talking about the freedom of the therapist. (laughs) (laughs) For responsibility, I think what I found helpful is um, even before having this dialogue, if someone uses the term responsibility over and over and over to kind of clarify very clearly, like to say, well, responsibility is not uh, you feeling a martyr or feeling like it's a, as if you carry the world on your shoulders is actually connecting with your ability to respond in a certain situation. And let's, let's look at it. Even now in this dialogue with me, what capacity do you have? What capacities do you have uh, in your life? Like, as you said, Sav, does anyone like, uh, hold, does anyone hold a gun at your head to, to do something, including wearing a mask and all that. So how come um, you are not free? So starting small, I guess you said many times, small steps and slow down. I think that will become our motto. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed, kind of like the the phrase I kind of, that Janelle alluded to and then I, I said earlier was, you know, decisions will make you free. So if you take a decision, it might not work out, but at least then you have a point to go from again and again and again and again and again because you always have to keep deciding. But making a decision, whether that's to do something or not to, is very helpful in that sensing of that that freedom and that responsibility. And and really to to cherish this capacity. I mean, for me personally, it's being free. It's definitely scary and comes with uh, with a lot of consequences. And it uh, asked me to show up and to take uh, risks. At the same time, it's it's so miraculous. It's so valuable that we we can make choices and make our life and our existence our own by giving our yes to some possibilities, to actualize some possibilities and um, not uh, choosing other possibilities. But as you said, Sav, it's much better. It's a much fuller fuller life more fulfilled life if we choose decisively choose some possibilities to pursue some possibilities rather than just uh, looking at all possibilities and getting dizzy and saying oh I, I 
I'm not free. I, I don't know what to do. I, where should I look? Who is there to tell me? Because I also liked a lot what you said, Janelle. We sometimes say we like our freedom or what the government tells me to wear a mask. That cannot be. What happened is my freedom, my human rights and all that. But in fact, I think we, we crave restrictions to a certain level and we cannot do it. Even in our imagination, I liked a lot what you said there. Even in our imaginations, there are restrictions. I cannot imagine going on a plane wherever I want to go in the world. In um, Saf's, the example of Saf's client, I have to imagine immediately, do I have enough money? How much money do I have? So it's so striking that we, uh, we are condemned to freedom and, and yet we are very reluctant to take it up and leave it. You mean you can't imagine going into outer space? <laughs> that really brings um, war memories like from our first training together, right? Yeah, like, sorry, that's a bit of an in-joke mm -hmm. there. <laughs> yes, you can. And definitely I did not, you did not say that it's, de it's dependent on money or if you got the right costume for the outer space, you just went there. So maybe you are free itself. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I feel relatively free. If we talk about outer space, we're going to have to start talking about the abyss and maybe we'll save that for another time. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't want to go there because, you know, that's a lot of nothingness and oh God. Well, yeah, well, yeah freedom evokes uh, nothingness and the, the ultimate freedom, right? Like it brings a lot of anxiety and angst. That thing about responding rather than reacting, and Janelle kind of pointed out there, is invaluable. And even if I feel I can't respond, what might I respond? Like, what do I actually say? Even if I do nothing with it, even if I still continue in the same bad relationship, even if I continue in the feeling you're know, going to family Christmas, even though my, my parents are horrible or whatever, like, what do I say to that? that that's an invaluable thing, I think. That's incredible. That's true. We call it the gap of freedom. Yeah, I think Frankl also wrote about that. Like there is always a, a space between, he, he wrote about the stimulus and the response, whatever is that triggers me and my reaction or my response, there is always a space, even if it's a very, very tiny one. And this is the, the space of freedom. This is when I can actually act as a human being, as a person. Not just as uh, someone who's just uh, triggered by something and react, but there is a choice I can make. And that's, you're right. And these clients who even with addiction, who is like very, um, who feel very unfree, if we manage to create a little bit of that, a little bit of that, even in our sessions by slowing down, it's huge. Okay, so thank you for um, the dialogue to my colleagues here and thank you for listening to us. We leave you now with the existential question for the next episode. How is it for me to lose and grieve my losses? So one more time. How is it for me to lose and grieve my losses? Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast and let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.